This is an ABC podcast. It's Natasha Mitchell here with Science Friction with a question. Are you a two-headed gorilla? Now, I asked this weird question because in 1879, the founder of social psychology, so an important guy, right? The scientist Gustave Le Bon wrote these influential words. In the most intelligent races, there are a large number of women whose brains are closer in size to those of gorillas than to the most developed male brains. This inferiority is so obvious that no one can contest it for a moment, only its degree is worth discussion. Without a doubt, there exist some distinguished women, very superior to the average man, but they are as exceptional as the birth of any monstrosity, as, for example, of a gorilla with two heads. Consequently, we may neglect them entirely. Well, that was 1879, but so it is today, or so it seems, because cognitive neuroscientist Professor Gina Rippon from Aston University in Birmingham digs into the history of science's efforts to pin sex differences on the brain. In her latest book, The Gendered Brain, the new neuroscience that shatters the myth of the female brain. And just before Australia went into lockdown and borders closed, she joined me on stage at the Sydney Opera House for this year's All About Women Festival. Thank you very much, everybody. My last work has really been looking at what makes brains different, any brains different. And in fact, the book started much more about the exploration of how brains got to be different. Because I'm an autism researcher, and there's a great saying in the autism community that if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. <laughs> so we really, you know, I felt we need to understand the variability. Everybody's brain is, is different from everybody else's brain. And in fact, I wanted to call the book Fifty Shades of Grey Matter. Um, <laughs> but the publishers thought perhaps, A, I needed to kind of tone down the range of the areas I was looking at and also need to a bit more gravitas. So the book is called The Gendered Brain, and it's really about how brains get to be different, particularly with respect to whether they're male brains or whether they're female brains. And actually, it turns out, once I got into the research and really investigating this given, everybody knows that men's brains are different from women's brains, and that's why men behave differently from women, and men are from Mars, and women from Venus, all of those wonderful sort of tropes that we've all come across. So I went back and I had a look at the research, and I thought, let's really get into where these differences are so I can get a handle on how brains are different. And I started thinking, I think I'm looking in the wrong place because I really can't find that much evidence. And so eventually when I'd really gone through the research about brains and behaviour, I came to the apparently startling conclusion that the differences between the sexes are much smaller than we ever thought, even with respect to brains. So the question, have you got a male brain or have you got a female brain, my answer was actually, I think, A, we're looking in the wrong place and B, we're probably asking the wrong question. So I would say that actually, having come to that conclusion, and I will warn you this in case you feel the need to leave, it wasn't universally accepted. <laughs> <laughs> and I came across this really profound 
belief that we really have to acknowledge that scientists like me just, you know, get a life, get out into the real world. You really don't know what's going on there if you come to conclusions like that. And the kind of uh, discussions I was getting from the press when I was saying enthusiastically explaining, you know, the similarity between brains. For example, the, the Telegraph, Daily Telegraph in the UK, quite a conservative newspaper. One Christina Rodoni said, this theory smacks of feminism with an equality fetish. <laughs> so I kind of love the idea that if you're interested in equality, it's some kind of perverse practice. Um, <laughs> so this was the kind of response I got to my enthusiastic sharing of my finding. But this is my favorite, uh, full of carp, which I'm, <laughs> I'm assuming is a spelling mistake. Anyway. <laughs> So if anybody feels the need that this is dangerous information they're about to, to hear, then time to go. But let us move on. This, of course, is a very old question. Are male brains different from female brains? But we need to remember that this didn't used to be a question. More than 100 years ago, when this research started, when we first started to realize that uh, brains were in some, some way the source of all the kind of human behavior we were interested in, and even human places in society, you found that the researchers at the time, who strangely enough were male, had a very distinctive view about what they were looking at. They looked at the uh, society, they looked at the status quo, and they said, Women have an inferior place in society, which they were absolutely right, because they didn't have access to education or financial independence or political sources of power. So they said, what we as, as brain scientists need to explain is the fact that women's brains are inferior. So this was actually the beginning of a, what I call the hunt the difference crusade, where Scientists were saying, men's brains different from women's brains, let's find out why. Uh, another quote from the two-headed gorilla man, uh, Le Bon, women represent the most inferior forms of human evolution and are closer to children and savages than to an adult civilized man. So if you kind of harbor ideas that this was a nice objective scientific campaign to measure differences between two different groups of people, you need to bear in mind some of the thoughts later on, the idea of this complementarity trap. Perhaps we're being a bit rude, saying that women are inferior. What we should say is that they have these wonderful skills, which will, of course, complement those of men who are going to be ruling the world. So we must start with the realization that as much as women want to be good scientists or engineers, they want first and foremost to be womanly companions of men and to be good mothers. And those researchers were then looking at that particular part of the brain, the good mother part of the brain, for example, in women, which, of course, would be missing in men. Um, and the other thing to bear in mind is the kind of metrics that were used, which I won't go into in detail, they are wonderfully weird. Uh, you know, filling an empty skull with bird seed and weighing it, or feeling bumps on the head, or measuring angles. The idea of these metrics was to come up with the answer that they'd already decided was the case. So if, for example, they found a metric which put women at the top of a particular scale, there was clearly something wrong with the metric, so you had to get rid of it. For example, the kind of things that craniologists, the people at the end, were looking for was to demonstrate that at the top of any scale, and this did actually intersect with questions of race and class as well, were white upper-class men, a bit lower, lower down, white women and children, then lower classes, then other races. So we need to bear in mind this kind of research did not take place, did not have auspicious beginnings in a political vacuum. Now, I'm not saying that researchers today 
fortunately, use their metrics in the same way. But we are still very much in this hunt the difference agenda, and I think that's really what I was trying to challenge. So let's have a look at the argument. It was very clearly that uh, whatever it was that made men and women anatomically different, because the scientists did know that at that time, even though they didn't have access to genes, etc., that meant that that gave you a different sort of brain. Indisputably. So, if you had a female anatomy, you had a female brain. Ditto, male and an anatomy and brain. If you had a female brain, the psychologists joined in, sort of halfway through the 20th century, came up with this nice go-to list. This is what women are like. This is what men are like. So they linked the two together. If you've got a female brain, you're really good at empathy and emotional type things, but rubbish at reading maps. Whereas if you've got a male brain, you're fantastic at these kind of spatial skills, which makes you a brilliant scientist or an explorer, or just generally suited for uh, the pinnacles of power. You could become a great scientist, win the Nobel Prize, great explorer, discover America, Australia, whatever. But you weren't very good at emotion stuff or listening, and that then gave you a different place in society. If you were good at empathy, then you were really well suited to be a carer or a nurse or a primary school teacher. Biology caused psychology, caused your place in society, even though. The early scientists had started at the other end, so there was a very clear unidirectional argument, and these links were fixed. They were biologically determined, and that gave us what I call the sort of biology is destiny pathway. The idea that the brains of boys and girls start possibly slightly differently, and we we might come back to that, but as a boy brain arrives in the world. Perhaps already with some of the key skills, which are going to be really important, the brain gets bigger, acquires more of those skills, gets even bigger, becomes really resilient, and then lands up at a fixed endpoint with the kind of brain that's going to make you a great scientist or a leader of the world, etc. And again, this is a fixed pathway; it's the playing out of a biological script, if you like. Whereas the female brain, which have cheekily coloured pink,、um, possibly arrived in the world without. Too many of those key skills. As the brain got bigger, maybe didn't acquire too many of those skills because, of course, anyway, 19th, even 20th century, it was felt that women's brains were really quite vulnerable and they shouldn't be exposed to the dangers of higher education.、Um, <laughs> Because this would, for example, damage the, the likelihood that they would reproduce, or certainly make them less marriageable, which was a key measure of of how successful a woman might be. And her brain got bigger, and then at the end, again, we get a fixed developmental endpoint: somebody who was sort of interested in dressing up.、Uh, I cheekily put the kind of princess、um, trope, emotionally labile, but. But good at understanding emotions, and this is where I, what I call the kind of Mars-Venus idea came from. So you had this fixed pathway to a fixed endpoint. Couldn't change it. There was no understanding. We had a very fixed idea right up to beginning of this century that effectively you were born with a particular kind of brain. It got bigger with some connections, and they, by the time possibly in your late teens, that was the brain that was going to carry you. Through the rest of your life, so this was fixed. Now, the important thing to realise is that if you've got this kind of theory narrative underpinning any suggestions that you might like to look at some of the social injustices in the world, for example, the imbalance between males and females, somebody would say, "But that is a biologically determined difference. That's the brain you've got. That's the kind of things that you can do." And any of you. Noble people out there who are interested in diversity initiatives need to bear that in mind. Then along comes brain imaging, the kind of work that I'm doing, 
And at last, we've got a proper access to an intact human living brain. Because you have to remember that all of these wonderful brain-based theories really arrived before we had an idea of what the intact living human brain looked like, while the intact living human being was um, actually carrying out a task, even if it was in a brain scanner. So the kind of images that we produced were really felt that you could, at last, we've got handle them. You could have said at that point we should take a step back and say, let's have a look at these brain-based theories. Let's go back to the drawing board. Let's really have a look and see what brains are like, whether or not they're different or similar, what makes them different. But no, I'm afraid what happened is that the Hunt the Difference agenda continued. One of the things that happened is that these wonderful images were very, very attractive to the sort of self-help gurus who were writing books explaining why men and women were different. So we had whole tranches of books like this. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, obviously the granddaddy of them all. But also intriguing, men are clams and women are crowbars. Why men don't listen and women can't read maps. And what they tended to do was they'd already got the narrative and then they took these nice images because they told a nice story, didn't bother to explain the science behind the images. And therefore, at the beginning of this century, the first 10 years, there was a big tidal wave of these self-help books, which were really reinforcing the idea that, that men and women were different. And then people, killjoys like me, came along and said, do you know, actually, that's really not how the science works? And so I dubbed these um, neurotrash, as, as we'll come back to later. <laughs> the other kind of books we were getting were from the scientists themselves. A book called The Essential Difference by Simon Baron Cohen. And the term essential is quite interesting, I think, because actually what it means is sort of biological essence, two sorts of essences giving you two sorts of brains. But I think if I'd asked any of you coming into the room, you know, what do you think essential means? You think really important, something we should keep. Opening lines of his book, the female brain, so there is such a thing, is hardwired, can't change it, for empathy, so there we are, that link again. The male brain is hardwired for understanding systems, you know, the reason why men can do science, for example. So we did have the kind of neurotrash authors, but we also had what Cordelia Fines called the neurosexism authors, who were kind of maintaining this view that there was this very clear difference. But then we could also say, well, let's really have a look at, at what kind of findings there are using these wonderful techniques. And we had a whole range of papers, which sex differences in the structural connectome, sex differences in the adult human brain. And there were hundreds and then thousands of papers triumphantly uh, reporting sex differences, often getting reported in the popular press as, you know, at last the truth, proof at last, as though, you know, the scientists have at last caught up with what we knew all along. But when you actually have a look at this work, I think we could describe it as neuro-hype. So everybody was genuinely doing their research, looking for a difference, finding it and reporting it. And then somebody would say, well, it's interesting you say that men have got a bigger X in their brains. I've looked at X in men's and women's brains, and it's not different. But why is it different? So then when you start to go through the story, you think there is no consistent finding. And I have to say, as somebody who spent a lot of the taxpayers' money doing neuroscience research, <laughs> that as of today, there is no one structure in the human brain which can reliably distinguish a male brain from a female brain, or set of structures, or networks, or pattern of activation. You couldn't give me a brain and say, is that a male brain or a female brain? 
I couldn't look at a brain image and say, that's definitely a man doing this or a female doing that. I couldn't take any of you from the audience and say, oh, you're a woman, you'll have a brain like this, or you're a man, you'll have a brain like that. And I think that's a really important story, a, a really important narrative to remember, because, in fact, what's happening is that journalists come along, the At Last the Proof type brigade, and look at the titles of the articles or the abstracts, and they really believe that we have found human brain differences between men and women. So, big disappointment. We need to move on, because I might just say that actually neuroscience isn't very good at this question. Fortunately, I think there are better ways of asking it, and so I'll move on to those. And that's really to say, what new things do we know about the brain, which might suggest that the problem is that we neuroscientists have been looking in the wrong place. We've been looking inside the brain to see how the brain changes. What we need to do is look outside the brain. And that important thing from this perspective is that we realize the brain, the secret of human success, is not just because we got language and creativity, problem solving, which meant we could write books, paint pictures, uh, compose symphonies or whatever, hugely wonderful cognitive skills. A lot of the secret of human success is the fact that our brains are wired to be social. Human beings have the biggest social networks of any members of any other species, many more of those networks, all kind of interconnected, different kinds of networks, a family network, a business network, colleague network, whatever. And within the brain, we can see how we are constantly processing our own sense of self, sense of other people, really important sense of belonging, understanding social scripts understanding social norms, but also using the kind of stereotypes that I've been mocking because they're very handy shortcuts. If you're negotiating the world, you're going to meet a group of men, they're going to think like this, group of women, they're going to think like that. Our brains are the ultimate stereotypers. But our brains are also monitoring all the time our social behavior. And they're coloring the results of that social behavior with our little group of emotions, which we like to think we've evolved beyond. But everything we do is coded. This was a good thing to do. I should do it again if you encounter that. Or that really wasn't very successful. I should avoid that situation in the future. And we have a sort of traffic light system in the brain which really drives us through the world, very helpfully driving us away from situations where we might not be welcome, where we can't see people like us, for example. So that's really important to remember. The other thing is that it all starts really, really early. We used to think human babies, because they appear pretty helpless, not good at much other than crying, producing excreta, etc., we used to think that they were not very sophisticated. Human babies arrive on this planet with hugely finely tuned social radar. There was a paper last week which shows that already inbuilt our recognition of faces, inbuilt into the human baby. So we arrive in the world with a whole load of skills, a wonderful startup kit to make us social. So we need to be aware that anything going on in the outside world is being tagged by these tiny individuals right from the beginning. Two things we need to bear in mind then, that our brains are plastic, and this is a new way of thinking about the brain, not the fixed developmental endpoint I met mentioned earlier. The idea is that any experiences we have in the world are actually going to change our brains quite dramatically throughout our lives. 
So our brains don't arrive at a fixed point. But what's important is that what changes our brains throughout our lives is the experiences we're exposed to. And there are wonderful studies looking at London taxi drivers showing how when they acquire the knowledge, which enables them to drive around London, parts of their brain get enlarged. But interestingly, once they retire, those differences disappear. So our brains very clearly map the changes that we encounter in the outside world. And sometimes that's really significant because something that looks like a sex difference actually turns out to be an experience difference. Supposedly robust difference between men and women in terms of the kind of spatial skills they have. If you then ask them about the spatial training they've had, what toys they played with as a child, what particular experiences, their jobs, their hobbies, their sports give them, you'll see that spatial experience is a much better determiner of how well you're going to do in a spatial task. So what looks like a sex difference internally is actually due to an external change. The other thing to remember is that our brains are also quite sensitive to social information. If we give somebody, a, two groups of people, say, exactly the same task, but one group are told, you're not very good at this kind of task, but I just want to see what's going to happen in your brain when you're trying to solve it, or another group are told, this is the kind of task people like you are really good at, you will see that the brains will reflect that kind of social attitude that it encounters. And therefore, it means that our brains are not just kind of autonomous, vacuum-packed information processes. They're also monitoring the attitude within which we're carrying out a task. So two new things which really make us realize that we should be paying attention to the outside world. And if you look at the kind of effect of being put in a negative situation, being put in a situation where you're feeling socially rejected, or you've made a mistake, for example, the same areas of the brain which are activated then are the areas of the brain which are activated when you're in pain. So belonging is a really powerful social driver in the brain and something we need to bear in mind when we're trying to understand differences between people. So the world is a brain influencer. Do we live in a stereotyped world? Well, I can just stop there and let you kind of mentally wander around your world, your supermarkets, the news, the clothes that are on sale, the toys that children play with. And you will realize that we live in a very gendered world. And in the 21st century, we code the differences between males and females very firmly. If anything in this 21st century codes the emphasis between boys and girls, it's the fact that we're already labeling them 20 weeks before they arrive in the world. So we have those ghastly pink and blue, uh, it's a boy, it's a girl card, different kinds of toys. It's quite clear, and we've already seen that spatial experience is good. So if boys are exposed to Lego, for example, which it looks like they are, and girls are given Barbie the engineer to play with, and she can make a pink washing machine, you kind of think there's kind of different <laughs> messages from toys there. Education clearly has a difference, very marked difference, in, in, particularly in the early years with stereotypes. And also the whole idea of science, the idea that women can't do science. I'm very passionate about the underrepresentation of women in science, and people saying, oh, maybe in the olden days they just thought women couldn't do science because they didn't have the right sort of sciencey brain. And now you actually have a look at the attitude within science to women, which is generally not very positive. And we've got lots of examples here saying that if you've got the kind of social brain which thinks, I'd quite like to be a scientist, and you go and you look at what scientists say about women, whether or not they're expected to succeed, you might indeed think, actually, this isn't for me. 
Right, so this brings us back to this, and I would say I'm not a sex difference denier, which is one of the more polite things that I've been called, but in the same tone of voice as climate change denier, you know, with the same consequence for human civilization. I do think there is a biological script playing out there, which we can't ignore, but I think we also need to pay attention to the fact that this is a biological script playing out on a social stage. And really to say that, you know, having shown you sort of brain imaging slides, uh, this was summed up nicely by a drawing from a six-year-old, which says everybody's brain is attached to the world, which, of course, is exactly what we need to think about. So in terms of understanding differences between people, any people, but as whether in particular where there is a group of people, dare I say women, who are viewed as inferior or have sort of rather patronizing complementary skills, we really need to understand where those differences might have come from and perhaps look at the world rather than inside the brain. Thank you. Jane Rippon. There's some water for you. Cheers. So much to talk about. How do you sum up a 400-page book in 20 minutes? Um, let's come, though, let's cut straight to the chase on this question of sex difference denier and some of the accusations that you've got there. Because there's a really interesting tension going on right now where scientists who would identify as feminist are also acknowledging that the difference between the sexes, you know, male animals, for example, female animals have been kept out of all animal research because their hormones were considered messy. You know, they had menstrual cycles and that was all messy. Only male humans were used in drug trials, clinical drug trials. So it's had an impact on all sorts of things we're coming to understand, our understanding of pain, our understanding of mental well-being. Women's bodies were kept out of the data sets. And so now there's this push to try and put women's bodies back mm. into the data sets and in animal research. Yep. So how do you see that tension? They want to acknowledge sex differences so that women can be better served by research. Yes, that summed up the, the, the whole tension really nicely. I think it goes back to this old idea that it's either nature or nurture and that the, the two weren't in any way related. And there has been, there was a, a review of my book by Simon Baron-Cohen, <laughs> interestingly, where he said, oh, she thinks it's all culture and no biology, which really quite upset me because I thought my whole book is to say that these two are so intertwined that you shouldn't try and separate them. Because what I was saying is that these are biological changes, but let sex not be the only question you ask, the first thing you see, the only question you, are, you ask. Scientists have got huge data sets, and they're now starting to get more data sets with female data in, because, quite right, in, in some of the research, females have been ignored. Mm. But what they do is they take these big data sets, press the you know, male-female button, as it were, and just compare them in terms of, of whether they're male or female. And then they start to draw a conclusion. So they say, oh, we found this part of the brain is bigger, that part of the cortex is thicker. But they haven't asked if the females in the population, if you're talking humans, have the same level of uh, education, what socioeconomic status. So they're ignoring the plasticity argument. They're saying, we've, we've got a brain here, we're going to see what it's like. Ignoring the fact they're really getting a snapshot of somebody's life, which has been affected, you know, everybody's brain is attached to the world. So you need to see how have people been dealt with, what attitudes have they encountered. And that's what you should also not only uh, be looking at in, in terms of understanding differences. And I think it was really to say, 
pay attention to this. And some of the neuroscientists within our community do actually say, well, so you're dismissing all sex difference research? Absolutely not. But saying that you need to bear in mind that there's a social context in which this biology functions. And that's what might be giving you the answers you need. And in which these results get, you know, all these conclusions get thrown they get thrown into a social context, which is what makes a lot of people anxious yes. about this sex difference research because it's had dramatic social and political mm. consequences. Well, of course, it, then you get into the realms of self-fulfilling prophecy because if, um, for example, girls at a very early age you know, steered away from construction toys and doing science, etc., then girls don't do science. And therefore, you get a, you know, a fulfilled prophecy that for some reason, one half of the population isn't suited for this particular discipline. And now we know that the brains are plastic and we know that brains are permeable, as I've called it, and are affected by the attitude you encounter, even at the level of the brain. So as I say, giving somebody a task and saying, people like you aren't actually that good at this task, Surprise, surprise, you make more mistakes and your brain reflects that. So, I mean, speaking of babies, there's been a whole lot of fascinating work done on babies' brains. I mean, there's been real efforts to try and pin sex differences right on the fetus. Yes. Even before it <laughs> enters the world, because if it's in the fetal stage, you know, yeah. it's, it's got to be fact yes. and impermeable. So... Just, just ex explain how potent that work has been. Well, I think it's really the idea that if within hours of birth you're seeing a sex difference, then that proves it's innate. And there is this kind of debate about can something be innate or, or, or if it's not innate, then, then what? Again, the idea that it can only be one thing or the other. Uh, and it's only recently we've been able to look at baby brains in, in the way I talked about, same with adult brains, particularly with babies. So really only in the last 10 years have we been able to look at babies who weren't premature or who had some kind of injury or illness that meant their brains were being monitored. So we're really at the very beginning stages. And it's clear that babies do arrive with what I've called social startup kits. So they do arrive in the world looking around to see, because that's how they're going to survive, because they are physically helpless and dependent. So they need to know what a human face looks like, and if that's the face of the person who's going to feed them or look after them, if that's the voice of the person who's going to feed them or look after them. So all of those are new, very new things. And I don't think it's surprising that we have these kind of measures in, in newborn babies. Most of the research I've looked at with respect to sex differences falls again into these really small numbers. Somebody else has replicated it, and they have, or they haven't replicated it. But again, it's this big hunt the difference agenda. Why are we still asking the question, are these baby boys different from these baby girls? I think there's much more interesting questions to ask. We haven't even mentioned what many people would mention first and foremost, and that is hormones, <laughs> you know, which How have this have whopping <laughs> big social yeah. identity yeah. as much as a, a biological status in our world. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. But the it. idea yeah. is that hormones, uh, you know, the swill of hormones are what differentiate us in the, at the fetal stage. Yeah. And so that differentiation continues mm. on in our life. Well, again, it's a bit like that early chain I showed you. I mean, certainly male fetuses are exposed to high levels of testosterone prenatally, and that is right, not in any way denying that. Mm. But the idea is that that which determined the physical anatomical differences which get them identified at birth as male also determines that their brains are different. And that link is 
really been research to be looking at non-human animals in, in a very particular way. And I think the whole issue there is that non-human animal research isn't that informative when it comes to understanding the behaviourally driving processes of, of hormones. And we also now know that in humans, hormones are as responsive to social environments as the brains are. So there's a really nice study done uh, with the uh, fathers of newborn babies. And when the father of the newborn baby is the primary carer, and that's a you know, source of participants, which is <laughs> relatively recent, the levels of testosterone are much lower than the fa fathers of a newborn baby who is not the primary carer. So again, it's a social context, the same event, but we're starting to see that how our bodies respond to the demands of society is a two-way process. It's not this kind of biology in the driving seat. But it's interesting that you throw out all animal studies because some of your peers <laughs> are frustrated by that, that you're throwing out a whole body of work by saying, look, animal brains, animal hormones, animal biology, non-human animals, yeah. we are all animals, yes, are I mean, relevant to our own experience, when at a biochemical level there are still stories mm -hmm. that we share. Yes, I mean, I, I'm sorry if I gave the impression we should throw out all animal, uh, non-human animal research. I think it's, it's less relevant to human research uh, with respect to the kind of questions I'm interested in and, and with respect to, to gender uh, gaps, etc. And I think there are some physical illnesses where research that's done on non-human animals can be very relevant and, and key and important. But I think one of the things that we've seen, particularly with respect to the social brain, is that, I mean, we're talking evolution here, so I've been accused of thinking that evolution stops at the neck because, you know, the human brain hasn't moved on. And I think actually it has. What it has is become much more aware of other people, aware of other people's needs, how you relate to other people, how they relate to you. And I don't think we can answer those kind of questions by looking at, at zebrafish and bonobos, etc. Love bonobos. What, what I'm really interested in in your book is the way in which you, and you mentioned it briefly, but that kind of interplay between brain and world, and the way in which our own brain plays into the stereotypes, mm. and you talked about that, but yes. I, I find that absolutely fascinating. So you, you talk about the kind of self-limiting brain, mm. you talk about um, the sort of silencing that goes on, mm. self-esteem, uh, and then there's that idea of stereotype threat, whereas if we're, if we're told that we're crap at something, you, girls are crap at maths, we yeah, do, worse on, we do <laughs> worse on maths um, yes, tests right. and things, you yeah. know. But that kind of constant interplay, that we are our own, we are manifesting those stereotypes, our brain functions mm. in a way. Yes, well I think the idea that self-esteem is a very important driver in the brain and the fact that if your self-esteem is dented in some way, and I was saying uh, last night that uh, reflecting on the kind of things I do, it, it seems to spend a lot of time putting people in my scanner and making them feel bad about themselves <laughs> so I can see what happens to their self-esteem, which is... <laughs> you cruel, cruel person. <laughs> Think of the worst mistake you've ever made, how much of it was your fault, etc. Um, but it does show how powerful a driver it is. And our brains are here to make us survive. So if our brain is saying, this is a situation where there aren't many people like you, where you're apparently not welcomed, where what you do won't be rewarded, your brain is actually telling you, you know, like, do a U-turn when necessary. I kind of think of the brain like a sat-nav. And therefore, what we feel is, I don't think I want to do that because I'm not really interested. 
Sometimes we need to take a step back and think, how informed a choice is that? And it feels a bit scary to think we're being driven around by a, a sat-nav, which is sort of guessing the future as well, because that's the other thing the brain does. It's, it doesn't just process information as it comes in. It's saying, this is what's going to happen in the future, because that's, I've monitored the rules in the outside world, and this is what the rules are for people like you. So I'm going to take you down this particular route. So you feel that you're know, making an informed choice, but actually what the brain is doing Doing is picking up what's in the outside world and very kindly saying, I don't really think that's for you. And that, that's where I think gender cap, gaps come from. Thank you for being here today and thank Jenna Ribbon. Great question. Cognitive neuroscientist Professor Gina Ribbon there, author of The Gendered Brain, The New Neuroscience That Shatters the Myth of the Female Brain. No doubt you'll have things to say too. Talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell or email me via the Science Friction website. Big thanks to the team at the Sydney Opera House's All About Women Festival. Don't forget they have a fantastic podcast too featuring many of their events. Check it out. I'll catch you next week. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.